Well, why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Uh, so we've got more coming in. All right, let's begin. Father, thank you for this evening and the opportunity we have through the grace that we have come to experience through our Lord Jesus Christ to come together and study the Word of God. Thank you, Father, for your Word. Uh, help us, Lord, to be doers, not just hearers. And we pray you will uh, help our understanding and the Spirit of God will will, will uh, work in our hearts and minds to bring these truths to bear on our own spiritual lives and our own growth in Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. amen. We're looking uh, at uh, one, well, we were looking at last time 112 through 26, the full complement of the apostles. And uh, we noticed that the apostles, we noticed uh, last time I mentioned that uh, uh, they're choosing, uh, they're choosing a uh, someone to replace, um, they're choosing someone to place, replace, uh, um, Judas, who has uh, hanged himself, I'll get it out there. Well, I'm looking at this kind of slide I've got, and for some reason, it doesn't seem right here. Oh, I know what it is. I was supposed to give you this quiz. That's what it was. I forgot about the, I forgot about the quiz. So here's the quiz again tonight, you know. And I'm taking note of these answers here, so be careful here. And I'm reporting it to the pastor, so. Okay. All right, let's, number one here, true or false. Jesus' brothers were not saved until after his resurrection. The true, remember, the Gospels speak about them being unbelievers. Two, when Jesus says that his disciples um, will be his witnesses, He's probably making a prediction. I'm talking about Acts 1.8, and you will be witnesses. Did I say that was a prediction or probably more, what does that say? Command. command. More of an imperative, a command, wasn't it? Even the test is wrong here. <laughs> We're telling the pastor. I know it. Even, even the test is wrong. <laughs> when Jesus returns at the second advent, all right, when Jesus returns at the second advent, that's kind of a technical term, remember, for his coming is sort of two parts. The rapture, seven years, then the return to earth. So the second advent is often the return to earth. When Jesus returns at the second advent, he will initially initially touch down on the, on the temple mount. True. No. 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 Zechariah says he will touch down on the Mount of Olives, split that mountain in two, then go through the gate on the eastern wall of the temple there. Five, the valley to the west and south of the New Testament city of Jerusalem. Okay, you got to get your geography out. The valley to the west and south of the New Testament city of Jerusalem is the Kidron Valley. False. 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 The Kidron Valley is on the east side. The... Henan Valley is to the south and to the west, remember? And then there was a central valley. And then number six, the place where Jesus was crucified was called a Keldama. Mm-hmm. The place where Jesus was crucified was called a Keldama. True. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> got nothing? Yeah, that was Golgotha. Yeah, that was a place of the skull. But remember, last time in Acts chapter one, Acts chapter one, it says that when the payment he received for his wickedness, with the payment he received for his wickedness, one eighteen, Jesus. Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language a keldama. That is the field of blood. So it's not the place where Jesus was crucified. It's the field where Judas was died. 
Okay. I guess we'll keep your membership. I'm not sure about. <laughs> I'm not sure if this qualifies for. No. All right. We're looking at uh, at the full complement of the disciples of the apostles here. And we're talking about Matthias. We were talking about Matthias on page six, chosen to replace Judas's chariot. And we say we don't know exactly where they're where they're located at. Uh, remember, there was this upper room we talked about, and uh, if you go there today, and uh, remember we looked at the Jerusalem, and here in the southwest, we're looking from the southwest. This was originally walled. So in New Testament times, the walls came all the way down here. Here's the city of David down here, Mount Zion. But you'll see even on this slide, today they call this Mount Zion because it's a little higher. But here is where, if you go to uh, Jerusalem today on a tour, they'll take you to this location. And supposedly it's the tomb of David, which it isn't. Clearly it's not. They think they may have found something like the tomb of David over here. Uh, they're excavating. Jews have access to this. They're doing a lot of excavation here. Uh, they think they can found the house of David, even, possibly, right right here, close to the temple now. Um, the palace of David, I should say. But there's also where they think the upper room. But it's hard to know if that's really right or not. Here it is. We'll go today. I thought I would show you, since I showed you some stuff last week, I thought I would show you, rather than, rather than contemporary Jerusalem, I thought I would show you a model of Jerusalem so we can get our bearings here a little bit. This model was started in construction in the 1960s. It's a model that's about 150th the size of Jerusalem. It's off, it was often associated with the Holy Land Hotel because uh, before the Jews had access to the Temple Mount, they often looked at this model, or they used this model to figure, try to figure things out. It was started in the 1960s. It was at a, it was at a hotel called the Hololand Hotel because the guy who had the Hololand Hotel he sponsored this this thing. Now it's moved to the Israel Museum. And so here we're looking from the south. Here's the Temple Mount. Here's the city of David down here. Here's the southwest corner over here where we're looking at the upper room. We're not exactly sure. We're not exactly sure where they're at right now, but that that could be where they're at. Um, there's the Temple Mount. There's the upper room. There's Herod's palace over there. That's where Jesus would have been taken before his crucifixion. Here's Jerusalem from the east. So here's we looked at those. Here's the Temple Mount. We looked at those last time. We looked at the the actual Temple Mount today, which has got the Dome of the Rock on it. Dome of the Rock is right here, right at that location. And the Alaska Mosque is right down here. This is a called a Royal Stoa, probably where the Sanhedrin met. This is a pretty accurate model. It's got the best archaeological evidence we have in mind of this particular model. How close are those people to just for scale? Uh, they, I'm not, they're... Let's see, a, a person on this model would be about 3.5 centimeters high. Well, it's 2.54 centimeters to the end, so maybe an inch and a half. So if you were on this model, I was going to use an inch and a half. These people are just about uh, 20 foot, 15 foot, something like that. So here is uh, the Antonio Fortress here, where we'll see Paul is taken later in the book of Acts. This is the court of the Gentiles out here. This is the upper city there. So here we're looking at the city of David from the south. Here's that central valley that would have come up through here. There's a valley here. Here's the Kidron Valley over here. And the Hinnon Valley around here. We're taking a closer look at the city of David. Here we're looking from the west, and uh, we're seeing, uh, this is actually, this particular photo is that when it was at the Holy Land Hotel, but other one was where it's at the Israel Museum today, but 
Here's the Western Wall. We'll see this again. This is the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, where Jews come today. It's not permitted to worship or do anything on the Temple Mount. That's controlled by the Arabs, by Jordan. So there's that Western Wall. I'll show you a photo today because we're up. We're in the Feast of Tabernacles right now. And I've got a photo of today at Jerusalem. And it's just packed in down here for the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles. There's the city of Southwest. All right. So let's uh, look at our notes here. We were talking about Judas, the replacement for Judas. Peter says, you remember in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, that Scripture had to be fulfilled. So he says this was predicted in the Old Testament that Jesus would be uh, betrayed. And it's no surprise to God, and so now they're going to choose a successor. And I suggested that, you know, I think Jesus probably gave them direction about this, uh, how they were supposed to carry this out. On page 7, Peter mentions in the text here, in verses 21 and 22, a couple of requirements for this new apostle. First, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. So here is somebody who has walked with Christ, been with Christ, was not an apostle, but was with Christ from the very beginning, beginning with John's baptism. That's the beginning of his really appearance, remember, in Israel, his baptism. To the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So we want somebody who has been with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry all the way through and was a witness to his resurrection. So he can be a witness because there's no videos, there's no books about Jesus, uh, there's no photographs. It's eyewitness accounts that are important here. And so they have these two converts. He must be a longtime follower of Jesus, not a recent convert. And he must be a witness of the resurrection. See, that was one of the points that Jesus even mentioned about his disciples. They're supposed to be witnesses of what they have seen and so forth. John fifteen twenty seven, Jesus says, um, And you must also testify. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes, he will testify about me. And you must also testify, you apostles. For you've been with me from the beginning, John fifteen twenty seven. So, They're looking for someone who's been with them from the beginning. And so they pick out a couple of possibilities. Joseph, called Barsabas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. These two men are the two who are picked. Um, I say here, Joseph was called Barsabas by the Aramaic-speaking Jews. means son of the Sabbath. Probably maybe he was born on the Sabbath. He's also got another name, Justice, uh, Arcebus, also Justice. Uh, this is probably his Roman cognomen. Okay, so what do we got here? Well, in the New Testament period, we've got Jews probably in Jerusalem who are probably, many of them, trilingual. That is, remember, Hebrew is the language of the Old Testament. They spoke Hebrew. They wrote the Bible in Hebrew. But when the Jews were taken into captivity, in the Babylonian captivity, the language of Babylon and the language of the world then, of the civilized world, was Aramaic. Aramaic is a language very similar to Hebrew. If you go to seminary, like I did, you you take Hebrew and then you take Aramaic. I took Aramaic after Hebrew because it's very similar. It's very close, very close language to, to Hebrew. And, you know, parts of Daniel are written in Aramaic. <clears throat> so it's very similar. And so when the Jews came back from this captivity, they tended to speak Aramaic. And Aramaic is probably their main language. Jew- Hebrew would have been spoken a lot in the synagogues. The scriptures read in Hebrew. So a lot of people would have known Hebrew and Aramaic. Some may have not known that much Hebrew, just Aramaic. And then Greek. Greek was the international language. And so a lot of people... New Greek. There's a lot of evidence that Jesus would have known Greek and spoken Greek also. 
I won't go into all that here. But so we see in the New Testament a lot of times Aramaic names. We say about Aramaic names. We're talking about the language that the Jews mainly spoke in and so forth from the time of the captivity. And also mention it says his name is Justice here. Justice is more of a Roman name. And I threw out here that it's, I don't know why I put that in there, but it's Roman cognomen. We'll talk more about this when we get to Paul, but Romans had three names. Like we have, most of us have a three-name system. We have a first name, a middle name, and a last name. And in our system, the American system, the English system, say versus the Chinese system, uh, when our when I know when Chinese or, or Japanese students would come to the seminary, it was always difficult because they'd have to reverse their names because in, in their language they say the family name first. It would say like Combs Bill, and then they'd have to switch it around and so forth like that. Well, um, in 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 Roman in Latin Roman uh, convention. The family name is the middle name. And then there's a prinomen and a cognomen. These are just other names. This is more something like a first name. So when we talk about Julius Caesar, the most famous Roman of all, we think Julius is his first name and Caesar is his last name. That's not true. Julius is his family name. It's like Thomas. Caesar is like Bill. So it's, it's different. And we'll see this when we get to Paul because Paul was a Roman. Therefore, he had... A prinomen, a nomen, and a cognomen, he had to. Every citizen had to. And so when people got citizenship, when they were from Jews got citizenship, or other people got citizenship, they had to take a name. They would take a family name of somebody maybe who freed them or who could help them with their citizenship, who sponsored them. They just have to take a family name. They may not have had a family name. We'd love to know what Paul's family name was. That would be very interesting, but we don't know. All we know is probably... Just his name, Paulus, which is probably his cognomen. So this, we're just told here, this man had the name Justice. Now, they, neither of these men, you know, uh, Barsabas or Matthias, are mentioned again in Scripture. Uh, later tradition says, it's just tradition, but we don't know that Matthias was a missionary to the Ethiopians. Maybe true, we're not sure about that. So anyway, they nominated these two men, and they cast lots. They prayed, Lord, show us which of these two cast lots. The lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. This is a Old Testament procedure, casting lots. Going back to the scapegoat, remember Leviticus 16, 7 through 9, Aaron is to take two goats, present them before the Lord at the entrance. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice. So one, all, one goat was sacrificed and one goat was sent away as to kind of depict our sins departing, being, or our sins are removed from us and so forth. And we think of Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So this was an Old Testament procedure. And some people think that... that uh, the apostles erred here. They they made a mistake. What are they doing casting lots in the New Testament age here? And so, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of G. Campbell Morgan. He was a famous preacher, famous uh, British preacher. Oliver B. Green, he was a famous Southern evangelist, if you ever heard of him. Jay Adams, you may have heard of, a famous counselor, a mutetic counselor, and so forth. The, so you, you read people who say, now they erred here. Paul should have been the 12 apostles. Remember, the apostles are going to be on the twelve on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Judas is not that man. Who is that 12th person? And some have said the apostle Paul should be that person. But I would say no. No, that uh, Matthias is the 12th apostle here. And the number of reasons for that. First of all, there's no indication they made a mistake here. Luke records this. There's no indication... Every indication is that Matthias was accepted as an apostle. For instance, if we look at Acts chapter 2, a little further on in verse 34, verse uh, 43, I'm sorry, it talks about the apostles. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Everyone was filled with awe and the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. 
It doesn't say the 11, it says the apostles. One assumes Matthias is one of these apostles who is maybe performing these mighty wonders and so forth. The same thing true is in Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. He's grouped with the apostles, uh, 5.12. The apostles perform many signs and wonders among the people. <clears throat> and uh, one assumes that includes Matthias. And as I say, I think it's very possible that Jesus may have told them to do this. They're following his orders on the casting of lots and so forth. Remember we said in Acts chapter 1 verse 2, Luke says that Jesus, be, what he says in my former book, I wrote about Jesus, all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after giving instructions, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So he's he had given a lot of instructions during that 40-day period between his death and, and the, the ascension, between his resurrection and ascension. And so I think it's possible that he... Um, he gave instructions on how to do this, and they're following his instructions here. Now, those who say Paul is the one, there's problems for Paul. First of all, Paul didn't meet these qualifications. You know, it says the qualifications they list are he's got to be someone who has been with the Lord Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. That was certainly not Paul. We don't know exactly Paul's background, but he certainly wasn't a follower of Jesus from the early days of Jesus. So he doesn't meet these qualifications. Paul himself seems to recognize Matthias as the 12th apostle. Now, he doesn't mention him by name, but he has a statement in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember, this is that famous beginning passage of 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, I want to uh, tell you about the gospel and so forth. Verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 is the first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, raised the third day. Verse 5, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Paul talks about the twelve. Well, that can't be Judas because Judas is dead. Judas died before the resurrection. So when Paul says he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve, Paul is talking about the twelve, and that would be Matthias here. Uh -huh. Paul's apostleship was sort of unique. You remember he says in verse 8 of this same chapter, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. What does the King James says? Born out of due season or something, you know. In the sense of Paul was saved later on. He was called to be an apostle later on. He didn't walk with the Lord. We don't even know if he knew, if he even saw Jesus or anything. We don't, we don't know that. We don't know what his situation was in Jerusalem. We can't be sure. So I think it's more likely that Matthias, what they have done is correct here, and they have chosen Matthias to be the 12th apostle, and he will be the 12th apostle when that time comes in the kingdom. So what is Paul called? Like, what is he considered? He's an apostle. He's just not one of the twelve. Okay. And there may be other apostles besides Paul. There's a big debate about that. Mm -hmm. Are there other apostles besides Paul? Because in Galatians chapter 1, Paul almost refers to James possibly as an apostle. Mm -hmm. So some would say James was an apostle. It's possible there were other apostles besides Paul. It's difficult. It's clear there were 12 in Paul, but beyond that, there's some debate. And when we get to the book of Acts here, we'll see that Luke says the apostles Paul and Barnabas. He talks about Paul and Barnabas being apostles. So we don't know if that's true or not. It's, it's a little difficult to know what Luke means because the word apostle has a couple of senses. Uh, the word apostle has kind of a general sense, which just means, you've heard people say a sent one, apostolos from a verb apostello to send. So an apostle is a sent one. There's the general sense. And if the word apostle is used in scripture of other people, like Epaphroditus is called <coughs> the Philippians apostle. Now, no, no translation translates it apostle, but it says apostolos there. 
because it's a general sense of someone sent on a mission, an ambassador, and so forth. So there's the general sense of apostle. In fact, the Latin translation of apostolos is missionary. So it could be that when Luke says, it could be saying the missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, or does he mean the technical sense? The technical sense is someone who was chosen by Christ to be his representative. So that's it's a little difficult to be sure. We know there were 12 and there were Paul beyond that. Some question about that. Well, let's look then at the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. First of all, we see the miracle at Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. As I say, Pentecost here is from the Greek term, Greek for 50th. So it's 50 days after Passover. This would be a Sunday in AD 30. If, if, if it's true, Jesus died in AD 30. We don't know the exact year. I kind of I kind of favor the AD 30 date myself. But if it's AD 30, this would have been a Sunday on AD 30. So it's the Feast of Pentecost. It's also called the Feast of Weeks. Uh, Exodus uh, Exodus uh, 34, 22 um, as I say, uh, because it came after a period of seven weeks of harvesting. So Pentecost is one of those three festivals mentioned in Exodus and Leviticus. Three major festivals. Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which comes after Passover. There's Passover, then a week of unleavened bread. Three times a year to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. So that's Remember, these, these dates, uh, you can't give an exact date for these because the Jews are on a lunar calendar. So their dates vary, you know, just like, well, you know, all their dates vary. So right now they're, they're having tabernacles right now. Celebrate the Feast of Harvest with the first fruits of your crops and uh, you sow in your field. That's, that's what we're talking about here, the, the harvest. Sometimes Pentecost is called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. And celebrate the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather your crops from the field. Three times a year, all men are to appear before. So all Jewish males were supposed to come to Jerusalem three times a year for those three feasts. Three times a year. And so uh, right now, they're celebrating the feast of ingathering. Here's a picture from the day I saw. That's at the Western Wall. And uh, they're there to celebrate this feast of tabernacles. Remember, this was where the Jews made these little, it's called the Feast of Booths, you know, they made these little temporary shelters to remind them of their wilderness wanderings. When I was a, when I was just a boy, I remember down in North Carolina, we went to see our, my, my mother's sister, and they, they were members of a Methodist church, and in the summer, they would have they would have a big kind of campground feel and they would have these temporary shelters and they would go there and spend a week. Did you ever hear of anything like this? These were these were Methodists, but they were sort of emulating this feast of booze. They would go there and stay for a whole week in these booze. Some people would just come, somebody would work in the day and just come at night, but they would have food and fellowship and other things, you know. But it was kind of a week of camp almost that they would have, but they, would, they were kind of... Uh, uh, operating on the same system that the Jews were operating here. So this is the Feast of uh, Tabernacles here. We're in that season right now. Uh, It says they were all together um, in one place. Now when it says they were all together, the nearest antecedent here is the apostles. Verse 26, Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So the reason I'm mentioning that is because I think it's the 12 apostles who are speaking in tongues and all these wonders and miracles are associated with them, not with everyone there, because it says they were, that is, the apostles were in one place. Uh, it says, suddenly a sound came from a blowing of a violent wind, like a blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Again, this is a difficult thing to know exactly where they're at. I say sometimes 
It refers to the temple, sometimes this Greek word for a house. But everywhere in Acts, except where we have Stephen's speech, it refers to uh, it refers to something other than the temple. Greek, uh, Luke uses a different word for temple. So sometimes the word house here is used in the temple, but not usually. We're just trying to figure out exactly where they're <clears throat> at here. Um, exactly where are they at? Are they in the upper room somewhere? The, the truth is, somewhere along the line, these events moved to the temple. As you read the narrative here, it says they're in one place, and they're sitting. Well, there's no place to sit in the temple. So here's the temple. The disciples were constantly meeting at the temple, Luke 24, 53, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. And we'll have references to Solomon's colonnades here. Here's the Temple Mount. Here's a, a portico, Solomon's portico or a colonnade. So Jesus, remember, preached in the temple. He taught people there in the temple in this area of the Temple Mount, the colonnade there, we think. But it says here they were sitting, so it's a little difficult because there's no, as far as we know, there's no place to sit there in the Temple Mount. So it's hard to know what happened here, where they were at, Somehow or another, we get to the temple here as the story moves on here. Uh, they migrate to the temple precinct somewhere here, somewhere around Solomon's Colonnade. Um, and we notice in the text it says, uh, this violent wind came, verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, I mentioned on page 8 here, this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we talked about. Remember, Jesus says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. I want you to wait for this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and here it comes. Here is the evidence of it. Remember, we looked at Acts chapter 11 last time, uh, a few weeks ago where Peter says this baptism of the Holy Spirit took place on the day of Pentecost, referring to Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1. So we see the sound of wind, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a mighty wind. This obviously is designed to represent the Holy Spirit. Um, I can't remember. <laughs> it was last week the pastor was talking about this. Was this in the sermon or... Uh, but Ezekiel 37, you remember he talked about the dry bones and so forth and the, vow, the vision of the dry bones. There in that Ezekiel 37, it uses this same kind of language um, about um, wind, uh, the, the, the sound of wind. We think of John 3 too, uh, remember uh, the Holy Spirit like wind, the breath and so forth. But in Ezekiel 37 Nine and following this valley of the dry bones and so forth, prophesy to the breath or to the wind, prophesy, son of man, and so on. Come, breath, come from the four winds and breathe to these slain. So the, the work of the Spirit is often compared to the wind. That's the, the point I'm trying to make here in a roundabout way. So we have this wind, and then we have these fire-like tongues. They saw what seemed to be Tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So the wind reminds us of the spirit. The fire-like tongues sort of remind us of maybe the burning bush, possibly. Remember that fire, the burning bush, or the pillar that followed them, that burning cloud, that that cloud. Um, remember, this is what was sort of predicted about the ministry of Jesus. This fire. Uh, John says, I baptize you, uh, Matthew 3.11. I baptize you with water, but after comes, come, one comes after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Also Luke 3.16. So here we have the Holy Spirit coming. We have this evidence, clear demonstrating evidence, this miraculous presence of the Holy Spirit coming. And it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Well, this uh, filling of the Holy Spirit is uh, is a 
complex subject, actually. As I say here, uh, let me read my notes. It says, in the, Luke, in the Gospel of Luke and Acts, there are 14 references to the filling with the Holy Spirit or being full of the Holy Spirit. So there's the language of the filling of the Holy Spirit or being full of the Holy Spirit. These references use slightly different words and grammatical construction in the original <coughs> Greek language. They speak of what we might call special filling and ordinary filling. So I'm arguing here, as many do, I'm not the originator of all this by any means, that uh, Luke's language in Luke and Acts, he uses the terms filling, but he uses in the original language different constructions, uh, different words for fill. We have We just say fill, but the Greek has couple of words here, two different words. And this construction and these words designate two kinds of filling. What we might call special filling, I'm calling special filling, and what we might call ordinary filling. Now what do we mean by that? I put the I put the passages down there. Special filling as in Acts 2 4. So I'm putting Acts 2 4 in this category of what we might call special filling. Special filling is a special act of divine enablement related to a verbal proclamation. A special filling is not the result of prayerful seeking. In fact, no conditions have to be met to obtain it, since each one is sovereignly given. So what I'm arguing here is these verses here, Luke 115, Luke 141, Luke 167, Acts 4.8, and our Acts 2.4 I didn't put here, uh, are examples of the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit comes upon someone and it's not because they prayed because of anything they did this is God sovereignly coming upon these people for a special usually proclamation Luke 167 his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied Peter in Acts 4.8 was filled with the Holy Spirit and he got up and See, spoke. Uh, Acts 4.31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. So I'm saying there is this special filling of the Holy Spirit that sovereignly comes upon people for a particular purpose, usually a verbal proclamation. And I say here, continuing on, this special filling in the New Testament is similar to the coming of the Holy Spirit on Old Testament saints to accomplish a divinely given task. So, for instance, Exodus 31, 2 through 4. I have chosen Bezael, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and with understanding. Not because he prayed hard, he asked for it, no with knowledge and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones to work. So God brought the Spirit of God upon this man for a special purpose or task. Deuteronomy 34, 9. Now Joshua the son of Nun was filled with the Spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him so that Israelites listened to him and he did what the Lord had commanded. So here God filled Joshua with the Spirit for a special anointing or filling to lead the people of Israel. It wasn't because of his per personal holiness. He had that, I'm sure, but that wasn't the point of this. This was a special feeling. As I say here, you can debate whether this occurs today or not. My own opinion is that this special feeling ended with the apostolic age. As I say, regardless, special feeling has no necessary correlation to the sanctification of our spiritual growth of the individual, it is never commanded. So I'm saying that this special filling, okay, some might argue it occurs today. Maybe it does. I, I think it ended with the apostolic age, but maybe it does. But it's not something people pray for in the sense of, or it's commanded that we get this. What we are talking about for today is page 9, ordinary filling. Ordinary filling. The ordinary filling of the Spirit is related to the spiritual character of the believer. 
One who is filled with the Spirit displays the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Ordinary filling describes a quality of life, something that is characteristic of the person. The deacons in Acts 6 are described as having a lifestyle characterized by wisdom, faith, and the Holy Spirit. Remember, it says, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the minister of the, of the word. The, the proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So it says faith, wisdom, the Holy Spirit, also Philip and so on. They chose. So I'm saying this ordinary filling speaks about the spiritual character of the person. Describes their quality of life. I say the, the idea is that of a godly believer, someone whose spiritual maturity is apparent to all. This is the same idea found in Ephesians 5.18. When Paul exhorts the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit, he wants them to keep on exhibiting, because that's sort of the, the tone of the verse there, the, the imperative in Greek is a continuous thing, keep on being filled with the Spirit. He wants them to keep on exhibiting those qualities that are characteristic of the Spirit, what Paul calls elsewhere in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. This is the natural and normal process of sanctification or spiritual growth as a believer continues in his or her obedience to God. Note the parallel in Colossians 3, 16 and 17. There Paul says, let the word of God richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to the to God the Father. So if you compare that Ephesians 5.18, you probably have looked at this before with the Colossians 3. Remember, Colossians and Ephesians are very close together, very parallel, a lot of similar verses, aren't they? They were written by Paul probably almost at the same time because they were sent during that first Roman imprisonment and sent by the same messenger back to Colossae, back to Ephesus. But if you look at Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, whereas Paul says in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. See the parallels there? Ephesians. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Colossians, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians, giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Colossians, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So these are very parallel passages. This filling of the Spirit relates to our spiritual growth, our maturity, our obedience, as I say, and our obedience to God and his word. So we're filled with the Spirit as we obey God, as we obey His Word, as we follow His Word. That's the ordinary filling. As I say, the filling of the Spirit is the normal experience of the believer as he or she increasingly strives to live a life that is in obedience to God and His Word. Paul's exhortation in 5.18 is to continue or keep being filled with the Spirit. We know we're indwelt by the Spirit, so we want to keep on that practice of the Spirit. We want to demonstrate those fruits of the Spirit, and we do that by the means of grace, by prayer and the Word, by being obedient and so forth. That's what we might call the ordinary filling of the Holy Spirit. Okay? All right? Good. Everybody agrees. For charismatics or whatever, what would be well, using charismatics uh, will, they see one experience. They don't separate an ordinary filling from a special filling or the baptism. So they'll talk about the baptism and the filling. They always say they're the same. There's no difference between the baptism and the filling or this anointing. It's all the same. It's a special experience, you know, that comes depending on the denomination, uh, depending on what denominations. Some Pentecost, you know, most Pentecostals will say that um, 
the evidence of this baptism or filling, they use the word baptism more often than the evidence is speaking in tongues. And if you don't have the speaking in tongues, you don't have the baptism. Not all Pentecostals would agree with that, but that's that's the general view. That if you don't have the bapt if you don't have the if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the baptism. So for instance, the Church of God Cleveland, Tennessee. There's a lot of churches that got the Church of God Cleveland, Tennessee. They believe in three works of grace. They believe in salvation or regeneration. You're born again. That's the first work. The second is entire sanctification. So they believe that you have to have another experience after salvation where sin is totally eliminated from you. You become a sinless being in a sense. Entire sanctification. This is John Wesley and what Wesley taught about Methodism. So they picked that up from Methodism. Now you say they really believe that. Well, they claim to believe it, but they don't. it's not like they would say, well, sin is really something I really meant to do. I have to really be intentional. So anything else is not really sin. Even John Wesley taught that. So the, so the first work is regeneration or being born again. The second work is sanctification, complete, total sanctification. We believe in progressive sanctification. But they, Wesley, the Methodists, and the Pentecostals, the Church of God in Cleveland, Tennessee, believes in entire sanctification. They water that down pretty much today. The third work is the baptism. So you've got to get all three. You've got to get saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Spirit. You have to have all three works, actually. All right. So it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I think this is that special filling that God gave to them to demonstrate the coming of the Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What is this tongues? This tongues is languages. Uh, I say the NIV margin here has, uh, has languages. We know these are languages, real languages, for a number of reasons. Well, one reason we know is this. I just have to take my word on it. The word tongue here, glossa, in all of Greek literature before the New Testament, all of Greek literature, and there's no, there's no doubt among Greek experts, there's, there's no question about this, it only means two things. The physical tongue and languages. That's all it means. Physical tongues and languages. Now, our Pentecostal friends want to say it means something third, a third thing. Sometimes, as our pastor said, it's called ecstatic speech. People will use the word ecstatic speech. It's just this sort of gibberish, just syllables, you know, that they... they uh, and so they'll have a third thing. But I'm just saying, first of all, the word tongues in all of Greek literature only means, the before the New Testament, only means the physical organ of the tongue and a language. Now, we know that's true here. Verse 6 and 8, where another Greek word is used, dialectos. We get our word dialect. When they heard the sound, a crowd together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language. Now, the NIV translates language there because... It's dialectos. You could translate language in every place, really, here with tongue. Also, verse 8. Each of us hears them in our own dialectos, our own native language. Um, so this were, this, these are real languages. And we know from the account here, it says, How is it each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, and so forth. So these people heard real languages. There's no reason to believe these are not real, known languages. As I was thinking about and, and kind of doing these notes here, I thought maybe I should include a lot of resources here. I didn't know exactly what to do. There's a tremendous number of resources about this subject of tongues and so forth, if you'd like to read more about it. I mentioned an article by Dr. Mark Schnoberger. He's taught here before at the seminary where I used to teach. He's got an article there in our journal, Tongues, Are They for Today? That's very helpful, kind of one article if you want to read something more on this. There's a number of things. There's a series of posts here by Nathan Busnitz, and uh, I, I've just put the URLs there if you're interested in kind of pursuing that. Uh, there's a number of books. There's all kinds of books. MacArthur's got a latest book called Strange Fire, which is very good. 
Thomas Edgar, Satisfied by the Promise, Richard Gaffin, Sam uh, Waldron, so forth. There's a number of books. So there's nothing to suggest that these are not real languages, uh, real, real uh, cognitive value. The things that we hear our Pentecostal friends say are not real languages. They're just syllables. They're just repeated syllables. We know they're not real languages because tongues have been recorded in multiple services, multiple church services by multiple Pentecostals. They have never been shown to have any cognitive linguistic value. It's very easy. It, it, it's, it's, it's always possible to take an unknown language and figure out that it's a real language. This is what missionaries do. <laughs> it's what they've been doing for hundreds of years. They go to some place, they don't understand the language at all. But they can eventually learn the language because the language has cognitive value. It has real language value. It means something. But tongues have been analyzed time and time again. And they don't have any real cognitive value. They're not really saying anything in any real language at all. They're not a language. And I think our pastor mentioned this in one of the, one of the things, but when uh, it is true that when tongues were kind of revived around 1900 in California, the Zusa Street uh, thing and around 1900, these early Pentecostals believed that these were real languages. They thought they were. And they actually sent missionaries out to the Pacific, uh, to the Pacific Islands, to without any training in the languages because they could speak in tongues. So they it miserably failed. They couldn't communicate with anybody at all. And over years, they developed this third kind of use of tongue. It's not a real language. It's it's something else. So I just put that there in case you're... So, yes. so where did they get the idea that this syllables, you know, the syllables and all that, the speaking in tongues. Where do they get, where does that come from? <laughs> Dr. McCune, remember the seminary, he had, he had this expression one time. He said, he had to express this, what was it? The man with the experience, the man with the experience is not at the mercy of the man with the doctrine. The man with the experience is not, that is, experience counts for everything. If I've had an experience, you can't, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't care what you say. You know what I'm saying? That's, we all are sort of like that. Hey, I've had this experience. And that's what counts, is this experience. So it's very hard to overcome these experiences by genuine people, you know, who are many godly people who, well, our pastor was involved with this, you know. Right. He, he was growing up in his church, and his father, his mother, and all that, you know. How, how does he account for that? You know, it's, it's very difficult. But, and you, you know, you've heard the stories. You know that people have... Uh, have uh, I've never I've never had this myself, but I've had friends, you know, who have tried to speak in tongues and they go forward and they're told to just repeat syllables and keep repeating the syllable and it'll come out and so forth like this. So if you want it bad enough, I think you, you probably get it, you know, because these are these are people who are really hungering for God and want to experience a God and so forth like that. I think it's just unfortunate. So are they pretending? Well, no, I think it's sort of an emotional sort of height. You know, you have to be in a pretty high emotional state to speak in tongues. You've really got to be up, oh, up for it, you know. That's what I said, kind of like when she gets mad at me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it might happen in a few minutes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just kind of hold your tongue for now, okay? <laughs> You can let it loose in the parking lot. <laughs> and that probably comes with the look, too. Right? Yeah, it comes with the look. Yeah, it's, 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 it's very sad in many ways. Um, Bill? Yes? Have you heard uh, somebody? Yes, I have. I have heard, yeah. And it's usually, if you hear it, the stuff I've heard, it tends to be repetition of the same syllables, you know. But don't they have someone that... Says they can interpret it? Yes, sure they do. So the one that's interpreting it... They're just making it up as they go along. But who's going to deny that they're... Is the person who's speaking in tongues, they don't understand it. Right. So if somebody says, here's what here's what, here's what, what it says, you know, I've heard them speak it and I've heard an interpreter, who's going to say the interpreter's wrong? <coughs> you know? So Only the speaker. It, it's, it's a matter of impressions. You have this impression and... 
you know, it's easy for us to get caught up in impressions. And so, you know, you hear this speaking, you know you should be able to interpret it, and you have a thought in your mind, some scripture comes to mind, and you you say that is. Now, I mean, I've known people who have, it's probably not the nicest thing to do, but, you know, seminary students who have gone to Pentecostal meetings, spoken something in Greek or Hebrew, and then somebody gets up and interprets, they don't really interpret what they say, you know. Probably not the best way to <laughs> on a field trip. <laughs> that would be an interesting field trip, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, me. So, uh, verse five. Now they were staying in Jerusalem. God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now, as I say here in the notes, verse 5, um, these are probably not pilgrims for the Pentecost. That is, remember, every male is supposed to come to Jerusalem three times a year. Uh, so they would be visitors or pilgrims who come in uh, from, from different places. But I'm saying this is probably not the case here by the, the words that are used here. I'm saying... These are probably people who returned from the diaspora at some earlier time to settle in their ancestral land. What do I mean by diaspora? Well, um, remember, the Jews were taken into captivity. First by the Assyrians. Whatever happened to those people, nobody knows. The ten tribes. Uh, usually, when you meet people today, they'll say they're from the tribe of the, the two tribes that were taken by the Babylonians, they'll take from Judah or Benjamin or something, they'll say. But anyway, or maybe Levi, they'll say. <clears throat> but then 596, 597, the Babylonians, you remember, came down, took the Jews captive, and they were dispersed. Diaspora is the Greek term for dispersion. So the Greeks were dispersed, the Jews were dispersed to Babylon. And when... Uh, when they were allowed to return, you remember, and rebuild the temple and so forth and the walls of the city and later on, some of them didn't. Some of them stayed in Babylon. And a large groups were in Egypt, uh, settled in Egypt. There were Jews in Egypt down here, in Babylon, we don't show on this map. And then they got dispersed out because everywhere Paul went on his missionary journey, you remember, he found Jews. So this was the diaspora. But these people, uh, when they lived their lives, they longed to come back. Many of them wanted to come back and settle. That's true even today. You go to Jerusalem today, you'll meet people there who are from New York, maybe Detroit, somewhere, because they want to get back to that land. Even those who are not uh, Orthodox Jews, necessarily, they still feel that pull to get back and so forth there. They want to be buried there. Remember we saw that cemetery on the Mount of Olives? They want to be buried there because the Messiah's going to come down right there. They want to be there when the Messiah comes. So what I'm saying is there were a lot of Jews in the New Testament period who were born out here in the diaspora like Paul. Paul was born in Tarsus. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. And they would settle and come back. And the word that's used here uh, tends to refer to people who were staying, that is, they were residents here of Jerusalem. And when they heard the sound, it says... A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. And so they were amazed. They asked, aren't all these people speaking Galileans? Uh, remember I said before here that uh, indicates again that probably only the 12 spoke in tongues since it's doubtful that none of the 120 would have been from Judea. So I'm trying to make a case here that, uh, as I said, one, one, uh, the 126, the last antecedent was he, they were added to the 11 apostles, chapter 2, verse 1. They all came together in one place. This is not the 120, but this is the 12. And they were the ones who got up and spoke in tongues and so forth as evidence of this coming of the Holy Spirit. And if they say, aren't all these people who are speaking Galileans? All the apostles were Galileans except Judas, and he's dead. So these are all Galileans who were speaking. Um, so Peter stood up with the eleven, 
in verse 14, raised his voice and so forth. Uh, I'm saying that these people were amazed because they heard their own native languages being spoken. They heard, verse 9, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language, amazed and perplexed. They said one another, what does this mean? So they are coming from all over, settling back in Jerusalem, and these are the kind of people who were there. So they would naturally speak their own language, the language where they were born. They would speak those languages, and they would have picked up, you know, maybe Greek or Aramaic here as they moved back. As we'll see later on, they tend to have their own synagogues. Stephen was had they had their own synagogues because they would want to meet with people of their own language. So these people who had these languages came back, <clears throat> the miracle of tongues, the miracle of languages, and so they can understand these languages. These are real languages. They can understand them because you know, it'd be like us if we moved back to Jerusalem or and you know heard something in English, we understand English. It's the same principle. All right, I see we've gone over our time here. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll end here. Father, thank you for our time together this evening. Pray you'll give us understanding in these matters. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.